namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed noble, and fully self-enlightened one. <coughs> uh, we had two escapees, Liam and <laughs> Grace decided to go too early. Uh, <coughs> so uh, that's why we're here, just in case you wonder why we're here. So um, I thought we'd take uh, a little journey sort of around the Buddha's teaching trying to get a, uh, a fulsome picture of it as it were and uh, every, all his teaching really is contained in what we call these four noble truths these four truths the first one is uh, this core word of his Dukkha which translates as hard to bear um, and the question is, you know, um, do we do we cause our own suffering, or is that caused by the world, something out there? So we've already looked at that within ourselves, and <clears throat> what we're trying to discern very clearly is this distinction between the fact that life. It's hard to bear, uh, should we say, on, a, on an ordinary uh, daily basis and in a lifelong basis. Every day we have to get up, we have to go to work, and if you haven't got work, you're anxious about getting work, and it's, it's like it's a, a daily grind. <coughs> Very fortunate if you enjoy your work if work is well paid and so on. Uh, but even, <clears throat> even that uh, has its ups and downs. A job that we enter with great enthusiasm but in a couple of months becomes boring. And something, you know, it just keeps going on. And there's also a much deeper sort of uh, pain about life which is the process of falling ill, growing, uh, aging and, and dying. So it's not as though we're never going to make this life form any easier through the process of liberation. That's not where the liberation lies. The Buddha himself uh, grew old and died of uh, quite a, a painful uh, gastroenteritis. He didn't, he didn't escape any of the ailments. I'm sure he had more illnesses than that. Well, at one point he was very ill and somebody came and, and reminded him that just contemplating the seven factors of enlightenment would help. And that's, uh, and he became better because of that. So it's not as though uh, the Buddha is saying that there is a liberation from the aches and pains and the, and the process of living. Um, on the other hand, he's not saying that life doesn't offer us uh, pleasures, joys and happinesses. And when, it, when we think about happiness and our search for happiness, um, you can normally put it into three types of happiness, I think. The first one is 
just the the ordinary sensual pleasure of having a good meal or, or chocolate. Yeah. And then there's a sort of more engrossed type of happiness where we enter into an absorption with what we're doing. And uh, all these dangerous sports are really based on people who are getting that high buzz of losing themselves just for that dangerous moment in, in a perfect state of, of excited happiness. Um, <clears throat> a lot, I mean, every time we might watch a DVD or something, the underlying attitude would be to lose yourself in the film. And then when you come out, of course, you, you know, it's been a great film, you say, it's been a good film. <laughs> so, uh, on that type of happiness, which is a deeper level, of course you lose it as soon as you become aware of it. It's one of those paradoxes that we're most happy at that level when we don't know it. But there's, of course, a much deeper level of happiness, and that's to do with meaningfulness. And when it comes to deep meaningfulness, it's, we're talking about some sort of uh, deep connection with life. We're asking the question, why am I here? At its most uh, acute example, it would be uh, these people who are quite prepared to undergo imprisonment, torture, etc. for political freedom. Uh, just thinking of one case of, of Burma and the sufferings of Aung San Suu Kyi, her willingness to bear all sorts of um, indignities, imprisonment, uh, not to be able to be by the side of her husband when he was dying. She could leave Burma, but of course if she let, they wouldn't let her back in. <laughs> and they wouldn't let him come. So it was a point of anguish for her, I'm sure. And even more anguish to know that her close supporters were actually being treated far worse than ever she was, because as an international figure they had to be slightly careful. Many were tortured, tortured to death, and so on and so forth. These people, the unknowns, the ones that are sort of nameless, whom in a sense she symbolizes, are, uh, you know, have found a sort of tremendous courage um, uh, a deep commitment which comes not from any attempt to find sensual pleasure or to be in one of these beautiful high states, but because of some deep uh, meaningfulness <coughs> within them. And uh, one of our problems for, shall we say, a lot of people who've lost the connection with religion is that um, there is that, that, that sense of loss, of a, of a deep meaningfulness about their lives. Hence, the huge new religion of, of consumerism. Everybody's into it. And with the understanding that, you know, well, life is meaningless, or whatever, so I may as well enjoy myself. <laughs> but that layering of that deep sense of meaninglessness, with pleasure, of course, eventually uh, caves in. Because you know, there comes a point where sickness, aging, and, and the fact of death hits us. And uh, <clears throat> I, uh, I would have thought that um, that underlying meaninglessness is actually a state of despair. And I think that's what the Buddha felt when he first started his search. I think he felt that uh, the idea of constantly coming back to be reborn 
just a constant flow of this energy, we being reborn, reborn as this human being or as that animal or as that god, whatever, uh, with no end in sight, was meaningless. I think that um, we have it in our Western culture through the existentialists, um, who saw the idea of, of being conscious, being conscious. Uh, for no reason, having lost any connection with religion. Uh, people like uh, maybe Jean-Paul Sartre or Camus um, would have said that it's completely meaningless. So they had this, uh, this word, this absurd, it was absurd. And so this drive towards meaningfulness is really what we're doing. We're trying to find out why the hell we're here. <laughs> now we might we might like to, to say to ourselves that we know, but the real test is when you face death. Because death is the end of everything you know. And when we face that, that possibility, that there is an end point to this apparition, this person that I appear from moment to moment, uh, day to day, and I give myself a name, and I have a passport, and it all seems very real, comes to this point where uh, you know, everything that I have achieved, you know, all the wealth and the power and the, and the, and the object gar and all, all my, all my clothes and all that are, are all, are all left behind. Like it all just disappears. It was like the, uh, was, the solicitor was asked how much the old widow had left and he said everything. So, that gives you an idea of the finality of death. And, um, you know, one way to really break through delusion is the contemplation of death. It's a very strong contemplation. And it's there in a later commentary. Well, the Buddha has it. What am I saying? It's in a commentary where this Sudhimagra Buddha goes through. So this would have been, uh, to say, a practice that people would have had and people do have now, but just keep repeating the word death. Death. See? He says that's enough. But the Buddha says, uh, makes it even more, uh, uh, should we say, obvious, because we were talking about the discourse on how to establish mindfulness. We are talking about the body, that the first part is about the body, and it's split into various sections. First of all, there's the breath, there's one about actions, which I stressed yesterday. But there's also uh, one about the cemetery uh, observations. In those days, bodies were laid out in a charnel ground, and they were left to rot, eat, eaten by animals, etc. And uh, those who really wanted to face the meaning of death uh, would, uh, would go and sit and, and observe the corruption of the body. And he has that, I think, I think it's 11 or 13 stages where, where you can see the body slowly corrupting, finally ending up as just dust. And the commentary gives a very uh, worthwhile comment or a piece of advice saying that if you do this practice, you shouldn't sit inward. <laughs> so, so when, uh, you know, when you find a dead body and, uh, and have a look at it, make sure the wind is, is coming from behind. Um, just as a little aside, 
I was a, a European monk, I don't know what um, nationality was, who wanted to take that contemplation seriously. And he was able to get permission, don't ask me how, to take a convict's body that had died and carry it on his back to his cave. And in his cave, or at the outer out cave, he built a glass container which had a chimney going up. <coughs> and uh, when, when, uh, they, when it was, became known that this was, this was happening, the newspapers went gung ho on it and said, you know, finally, a real monk, you know, look at <laughs> And, uh, I don't, at the end, I don't know what happened during that time, but the end of the story is that he, he left the order and went to work for Mother Teresa in Calcutta. So, <clears throat> that, that to me sounds as though something happened in that contemplation. Perhaps it reconnected him with life, the preciousness of life, who knows. So, uh, this, uh, th- there is that about life. Um, it's, it's deep meaningfulness. What, what is, what is the purpose of our lives? At that deep, uh, level of, of just being a human being. And what, why are we here? Um, and that when the Buddha says this, he even gets, he even gets even more subtle because once we begin to um, access the position within us of the observer and we begin to recognize that the observer in that state <clears throat> when we're there, you see, and you have to make it sort of plain to yourself through the practice that when you're in that state there is no felt suffering everything that you're feeling is observed as an object and therefore the observer is no longer in a state of suffering. And it is said that such is the state of peace within that state, that even a moment of consciousness is felt as a disturbance. So <clears throat> this uh, feeling of um, uh, unsatisfactoriness, so it goes really, really, really deep. And this is what the Buddha, you know, he, he saw. But <clears throat> in the next Noble Truth, he points to at least the psychological reason as to why um, we're unhappy with this situation. And that is to do with his desire. And when we look at uh, desire, which we've been looking at through all our practices, um, we always find that is an I in front of it. So it's always I desire something. Luckily, through our practice, <coughs> say around eating, we can actually observe desire long enough to know that in fact the I doesn't have to attach itself. Our sense of identity with it doesn't have to happen. We can just feel the desire and just allow it to peter out. That, of course, is the escape uh, that's the escape from the suffering that's caused through this desire. But this desire, remember, is rooted in a, a, you know, a very good reason. The very good reason is to, is to enjoy life. That's all we want to do. I mean, when we get down to it, I just want to be happy. <laughs> and the, the happiness is, is, is 
you know, uh, to be found in the world. That's, that's the presumption. Uh, uh, you know, I'm living here, I'm, I'm, uh, I've got this body and it gives me certain pleasures and uh, I have friends, etc., etc., and I just want, I just want to be happy. But the happiness is based on um, a deep connection, a deep, excuse me, a deep delusion as to who or what I am. And that's my sense of me, right? I. Now, when you're in the state of the observer, there's still that sense of some body observing. So right there, right when we've pulled out of the body, because we're looking at sensations of feeling, right when we've pulled out of emotions, because we can feel emotions, see it and, and observe it, right when we, we, we've pulled out of the mind, uh, this may have been difficult over the weekend, but where you can actually observe just images passing in front of you, or even a thought, you know, uh, when you've pulled out of all that physical, psychological stuff that's going on, and you've arrived at this um, observation post within yourself, still there's a sense of somebody watching. And that's where it begins. It begins right there, with that awareness feeling itself as itself in the mind. It's like a mirror image. It's like when you look into a mirror, you see your face. And we always think that pe that's the way people see us. Yeah? Now, how many of you have done the two-mirror trick? Nobody. Oh, you're in for a big shock. <laughs> the two-mirror trick is, you look into the mirror, you get a mirror which looks at your object, in the, at your face in the mirror, and you're looking at this, at the way people actually see you, because the mirror turns your face around. <coughs> and it can be a shock, you never thought your nose was that big. It's like when you first hear your voice recording, you know, can't that me? Or worse, to see yourself on a video, as, as always, a tremendous shock. So, this, uh, this awareness, this, um, this intuitive awareness that we access in, in purer and purer through our meditation feels its presence in the mind. And it even has an object, a very, uh, what you might call it, a very fine object of a sense of I. And that's where you get this feeling of somebody observing, somebody feeling. See? Then, of course, because it, it sees itself in the mirror, and this is um, uh, Alice through the looking glass, you see, sees, it, sees itself in the mirror, uh, or better still, like Narcissus. Narcissus who looked in the pool and saw his face and fell in love with himself, went to grasp himself and fell into the water and drowned. Do you know, that is exactly what's happening. That's exactly what's happening. From moment to moment, we, we, we look into the mind and heart we, um, and we embrace it entirely and fall into the waters of life. And we're constantly becoming this, this poor drowning object <laughs> in, in, in a stream of life's consciousness. Because that's all it is. It's just a flow of these moments and moments of consciousness. So, <clears throat> That attraction, that attraction that draws us there is because 
This intuitive awareness simply wants to be happy. There's extraordinary innocence. It doesn't start from a place of uh, hatred or aversion or anything. It just starts from a very simple place of just wanting to be happy. That's all. And because of that, it identifies with what's actually happening through this primary identification. And um, if it's because um, the self, it's because because of aging and death, especially death, that this sense of self <coughs> feels so unsure. That's the problem. The self knows, we know, we, you, me, we know that come death, that's it. <laughs> the body, uh, everything will just drop away. See? So there's this underlying anxiety to life. And this underlying fear of death is driving us to make ourselves feel safe. And we feel safe when we've accumulated masses of wealth hundreds of friends, uh, racks of DVDs. I mean, anything, anything that makes us feel comfortable and safe, you see. Having done that, of course, we have, to, we have to guard this stuff because everybody else wants what I've got. And so there's this, there's, there's always an aversion to anybody who looks like taking what I've got. So there's your three fundamental attitudes to life arising from this initial delusion which is completely innocent right? it has no ill will to it at all of wanting to, to be happy and we end up being anxious averse and greedy and then, and then of course we, because of those attitudes we start doing things we start doing things which uh, are unwholesome, unskillful, and when we when we do that, we start having the secondary level of guilt and shame and remorse. Now, uh, <clears throat> the, the 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 point of escape from that delusive action is not the I, because by the time you get to I, you're lost. It's, it's catching, it's catching the wanting, it's catching the desire. So here, every morning, uh, we've been chanting dependence origination. And that's part of the teaching of the second noble truth, desire. It comes in there. And what the Buddha's pointing out is that <clears throat> at first there comes a, uh, some, uh, some sort of sense-based information. So we might, uh, might uh, <coughs> walk into the, into the um, uh, dining room and, and we, can, we can see it, we can, our eyes fall on the kettle and immediately this brings up the idea of tea. See? Now that happens quite naturally because of our past connection with kettles and tea. You can't stop that happening. It's just within the whole memory base that we develop. And then, of course, there comes a, uh, the desire. See, that's what we've been looking at. We've been looking at this desire, want, yeah? want. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll go back a step. Uh, first of all, there's just that initial information that comes in of the, uh, the kettle. 
and through that, the memory of the team. That's when we get down to our basic experience through the body or through the mind. So, for instance, you know, when I said, first of all, we might use the word pain, but when we go into the pain, we don't find pain, we just find sensations. So it's the same with anything we look at. As soon as we see something or hear something, there's always that neutral base of information that comes in. But then there is a description of it of either being pleasant or unpleasant. And that's the life, that's what we base our attraction on. If it's unpleasant, we want to get rid of it. And if it's pleasant, we want to to get it. So, that's the process in our psychology that we see the kettle. The kettle is given a meaning, and then it's connected with tea, and then, and then the idea that, oh, tea is nice. <laughs> and then there comes want. See? And only then do you get the I want. Now, this is really, really, really important to see. Because if the I came first in the process, there could not be an escape. Because the I is a signal of delusion. It's only because the sense of I comes last that where you can see the process that there's an escape. And the escape is at that point of seeing the wanting. At that point you can discern, you can say to yourself, well, is this my, is this time for tea or am I being greedy, you see? Now, th- at that point you have a so-called choice, right? Um, and this is one of those little areas where um, we, in the West, get a little confused because we have this idea of free will. Free will is a, a construct which comes from Christianity and it's based on St. Augustine. He was the one who defined it. And it's defined because God has created <coughs> human beings to love him. But what sort of love is it if it's conditioned? So a human being has to have the freedom to love him or not. And when they choose to love God, then of course he feels loved. You can't, you can't create something to love him and then feel loved by it. You know, there's something false about that. So the human being has this freedom and, and, and what you get from that is that this, this free will somehow, somehow stands apart from conditioning. And that's where, there's no other, there's no other culture that I know of. It's not definitely not in the East, the idea that you have a free floating free will. <clears throat> what, what you have in the East is discernment. You can see that something is right or wrong, and then you have, you can choose, but your choice will be based upon uh, your conditioning as to whether you're going to allow yourself to do something which is harmful to yourself or others, or or good for yourself or others. And through the power of discernment, one tends to move towards what is beautiful, what is good for you. So it's not. It's like it's like going for a walk. <clears throat> if you go for a walk and you're going from here to Ennis, uh, there's a path, and you follow the path. And then sometimes you get distracted, and you wander off somewhere, and you get lost. You have to pull your compass out, and you think, "Well, am I going to go back on the path, or am I going to keep being lost?" You know, back on the path. <laughs> so you come back on the path. 
you come to a path and the map isn't so clear and the, the, and the path seems to bifurcate and you think, where are you going to go? So you think, well, I'm not sure. So you try one path and you end up in a ditch and you think, well, oh, this is not the path. And you come back to where you were and you try it. And that's the process of, of uh, liberation in, uh, in, in Buddhist terms. There isn't actually any free will. See, what there is is, is a discernment through your dis- or lack of it, you, you make a, a right decision one way or the other. See? So, <clears throat> uh, just to go back to that uh, crucial point, if the I came first and then you had um, wanting and then you had nice ice cream and then you had the information that the ice cream in the fridge, there'd be no escape. Because you'd identify right from the beginning of the process. It's the fact that the identification comes at the end of the process that the escape is possible. Now, there's nothing in Indian literature at the time that expresses that depth of understanding of human psychology. It's it's extraordinarily new and something which, uh, you know, came out of the Buddha's own careful investigation of, of his suffering, of his dukkha. Now, <coughs> uh, just to skip the next one, which is the good news, and there is actually an escaping suffering, a complete escaping <laughs> suffering. Uh, the path then, the Eightfold Path, is a way of him expressing how this has to become totally systemic. Um, uh, you can't if you split the human being into its different into different parts, then all you get is at worst is a sort of, uh, for want of a better word, a, a schizophrenic uh, person. So, <coughs> uh, if they if if one part of us knows that um, you know we shouldn't be we shouldn't be eating all this ice cream, and the other part says, well, we should be, then there's going to be this internal battle all the time. Somehow there has to be a purification of our intentions. And that's of course where it works. So, knowing for instance that too much ice cream is not good for us is, is only the beginning of the process. Then we have to um, restrain and uh, not buy so much ice cream. As simple as that. <laughs> and, and keep away from the ice cream counter when we go to the uh, supermarket. So, <laughs> it's like it has to come into your specific daily practice so that everything we're doing has to be questioned. Is this good for me? Is it, not, is it wholesome? Is it not wholesome? And one little trick that you can try is to ask yourself, would the, you know, what would the Buddha do? Now that's not entirely reliable, but at least it gives us, it connects us to an archetype which is in us of the perfect person, of the saint, you see. You could do it with anybody. Would Christ do it? Would Saint Francis do it? You know what I mean? Like, because we know these stories of people and they've created within us an idea, an archetype of what it is to be holy, uh, to be saintly, to be good, yeah? To be liberated and all that. So often when you sit there and you think, well, should I be watching this TV program? I'll ask the Buddha. No. <laughs> it doesn't mean to say that you won't. But at least there's a, there's a certain level of truth there about it. 
And, and of course, if you say, well, yeah, the Buddha wouldn't, but I am, then at least, <laughs> then at least you, at least you acknowledge your weakness, you see, your weakness, and then you, you might make a determination that the next time the program's on, you'll, you'll find something else to do. Can take a walk or something. So, <clears throat> that, uh, that business of a systemic process begins with this right, with this discernment. And, um, uh, with, with, uh, specifically the boy, the Buddha's pointed to this process of wrong desiring, you see. Now, <clears throat> um, that, when, when a desire comes, whatever it is, whatever negative desire comes, um, it, it substantiates, it becomes something real from us, real for us, for us, when we identify with it. So when I say, I hate that person, that, that feels pretty real. You know, I'm angry with that person, I'm angry with it. But what we're learning to say is, there is an aversion towards that person, there is. See, so already I'm, I'm pulling myself out of, I'm not identifying with this thing. And therefore it loses its power over me in the sense of making me say something hateful or even think something hateful if it's good enough and definitely stopping me from doing something hateful. Now, this energy, uh, if, if you look at it like the weather, you know, like little storms and then suddenly uh, the sun comes out, if you just see the heart and the mind and even the body as just energy, forms of energy, then um, what we discover is that any negative energy we have will transform into its opposite. It'll just happen. Because no energy is actually lost, whether that's uh, a physical truth or not, it's definitely a mental truth. No energy is lost. It's transformed. And frankly, I, I much prefer the word, um, uh, it's got up in the head. Sublimate, thank you. Sublimate. Uh, which is to move, uh, you know, chemically from a solid directly into uh, a gas without going through the medium of a liquid. So when we feel aversion towards somebody, uh, if we just stay with it, stay with it, stay with it, <coughs> as it, as it melts, as it were, as it melts, you're able to put yourself in the other person's shoes and immediately a sense of compassion and, and some form of connection, which we might call love, arises quite naturally. Because when anybody does anything hateful to us, they themselves will have their own uh, internal problems, psychological problems. Uh, I remember uh, this happened to me very, very clearly on one occasion when I got into a, quite an adverse state with my teacher, who was a lovely Buddhist monk, a lovely Burmese monk. <laughs> and uh, I, I was very upset with him for various reasons, and um, uh, it wasn't completely wrong, but definitely uh, I got into a very uh, strong aversion. And, uh, it, and it's quite remarkable, because I, I was doing a, a personal retreat in Wales, uh, it was a long time ago now, but I remember sitting there and doing exactly that, just not indulging, you know, through storylines, my, uh, my reasons for, for hating and wanting to, to hang me. But to sit just with the feeling of this uh, really raw sort of um, frustration and anger and, and everything else down there. 
And then to my surprise, you see, I'm just watching this, I'm just feeling it, you know, I'm not extending any hateful thoughts towards it, but staying entirely with the emotional uh, content. I, I actually saw it just completely just transform into compassion. And it just happened in front of my eyes. And when that happens to you, then you know that's what's happening all the time. <coughs> Even if it's not so obvious or distinct. Over a period of time, if you, um, don't react, if you don't just react with anger, but, you know, stay with it. If you, if you sit in your anxiety and just sit with that, with that anxiety as it is, without it developing storylines of horror for us. And remember that something like 99% of all we're anxious about never actually happens. You know, once we drive that home, you see, so then, and what you see is that it transfers to its opposite. One of the things that uh, everybody suffers from, on one occasion or other, at different depths, is of course loneliness, feeling of loneliness. Uh, and loneliness is, uh, it can be very painful, a feeling of not being loved. You know, I'm no good and everybody hates me. And rightly so. <laughs> and all that stuff. <coughs> now, if you keep, um, if you keep that train of thought going, of course, then you're reinforcing that feeling of isolation, of being alone, in that bad sense, in that unwholesome sense. But if you sit with it, if you just stay with it, you see, um, then very slowly, you see, as it decreases, when it ends, when it ends, when it comes to an end, what you end up with is the transformation of that loneliness into a sense of solitude, just pure solitude, which is to be completely happy just being with yourself. Okay? <coughs> and that, these things you can, you can practice uh, you know, at any time, and what this does is, if you do that sort of thing, and take it to that point, even if it takes days to get to that point, take it to that point, then it builds up in you a real confidence to stay with what is so painful at times within us. And you know that it will pass, and, 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 the, uh, and the real insight is that the heart heals itself. And that's the, that's the amazing thing, that you don't have to do anything. It's just like water. If you take, you know, if you keep swirling it around with a whisk, then it keeps moving. But if you take the whisk out, the water naturally settles to, to a stasis, to, to a peacefulness. And that's the natural state of the heart. So when we, when, when we say that this awareness, this intuitive awareness begins from a point of innocence, it begins from that point where nothing is roughing it. But then it has this delusive moment. Every moment of our lives has this delusive moment. The idea of the self is always a substrate in everything we do. All we can, all we can notice is how it's drawing us into suffering and pull back from that. See? So if I see I'm getting anxious about something, I'm just going, you know, stay with anxiety. Often when the anxiety passes, you find that it wasn't to be anxious about. So, uh, our practice is to, is to be as best as we can, all the day. From the time we wake up to the time we fall asleep, is to be aware of how the mind is, is moving. See? Not to get anxious about it. See, if we miss it, <laughs> and just lay another load of stuff. But the practice 
uh, just makes us more and more keenly aware of what we're doing. And this idea of going slow, <clears throat> obviously we can't go as slow as this in daily life, but really just to keep stopping and to take our time. To stop and take our time. And often we think that, especially in certain work situations, that's going to make us inefficient. We may find, actually, that by doing that, we're actually more efficient. Because a lot of our inefficiency is done because of rushing. You know, forgetting your keys. <laughs> uh, we create so much bother for ourselves just being in this constant state of, of rushing. So, <clears throat> um, we've, we've come to a point now then where, by the way, the Buddha never offers any solution to the question as to why this should happen in the first place. You know, why we're here in the first place, why we've uh, uh, entered into this life form right at the beginning, because th- there's, no, there's no seeable beginning to karma. The Buddha says it's always been here. You know, the idea of cause and effect, cause and effect, is, is endless, you know. Uh, although in some religions they might talk about the first cause, that is essentially illogical. There is no first cause, it just, it just is, this is the way it is, all the time. And if you think of it in terms of a stretch of time, it seems, um, it seems unimaginable. You know, going this way forever and then going that way forever. But if you take it moment to moment that things are just arising and passing away, there's no reason to think that ever started or ever stops. Time, remember, is a mental construct. Is we build up some idea of history. But actually, all that's happening is this. And this. And this. So, uh, we can... Uh, presume that the Buddha was, uh, was very anxious <laughs> as before his liberation about, uh, about this whole problem. And in investigating this uh, process, he discovers something which is quite um, uh, uh, miraculous because up until then there had been some hints about it and the Upanishads that were being written were definitely um, moving in the same direction. But he came across this state which was outside the whole process of manifestation. Outside it. And yet, within it. So when he became enlightened, he didn't sort of disappear in a puff of smoke. It wasn't as though he went somewhere else. He still stayed in the body. And he still got up. And he still ate. And he, he probably still peed. I'm sure he peed. And he did all the things that a human being did. And he began to speak about his understandings. And yet, he was saying to people that there is an end to suffering, and he didn't suffer. Now, I don't know of any Western psychoanalytic or psychological uh, school which makes that statement. All Western schools talk about an accommodation. You know, that you can get better, you can be at ease with it, and you get to a certain place, but you'll never get rid of anxiety. You'll never get rid of fear. I mean, I've read this you know, quite clearly in books on, on psychotherapy and psychology. And, <clears throat> like there's that lovely book, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. So you, <laughs> you could say that for anything. 
because the depression doesn't do it anyway. It doesn't just work for fear. And the reason, of course, why they can't go beyond that is because they've not seen the core problem, which is a problem of identity. Once the Buddha had broken through the illusion of identity, he discovered a different state. And it's, it's, in, in the actual formation of the noble truth, it's just, it just says there is an end to suffering. Full stop. Yeah. Later, it's given this word, Nibbana. Uh, <coughs> nibbana is um, a state which is transcendent of a phenomenal world. In other words, in Nibbana, you don't find anything of this phenomenal world. What do we mean by that? There's no thinking. There's no images. Interestingly enough, even though we talk about the bliss of Nibbana, the peace of Nibbana, there's no mental states. There's no emotions. There's definitely no body. There's no sensations and feelings. The whole thing disappears within that state of Nibbana. Now, there's a kernel experience of that state, but then that state re-enters into this psychophysical organism and begins to express his wisdom. So the Buddha, having achieved this understanding, this experience of what is transcendent, re-enters into this form and begins his ministry. Yeah. Now, uh, in in early in, in the Theravada uh, Buddhism, this um, state of nibbana is tended to be expressed quite negatively because it's describing what's not there. And there are some very um, collective sayings of the Buddha where he talks about, for instance, well, we, we repeat one of them, there is that which is not born, doesn't die, etc. There's one where he talks about the sphere of experience, the sphere. So spheres in the Buddha's understanding are to do with your sense bases. So there's a visual sphere, which cannot be connected with the audio sphere. They're two different sense bases. They're two different ways of experiencing life. There's the mental sphere. But he says there is a sphere where there's no sun, no moon, no coming, no going, etc., etc. So he's pointing to something which is quite transcendent of this particular uh, manifestation called the world. He talks about it as an island. <clears throat> And he also talks about it as a, a consciousness. So the Buddha, like anybody who has a new idea or a new discovery, is always lost for words because the present vocabulary doesn't include that understanding. So in the verse, in the victory verse that we chant, he actually uses the word chitta, asankata, the unconditioned consciousness, for want of a better word. So he's using chitta, which now, which for those of you who know, in the Abhidhamma refers to the mind. But obviously the mind can't be unconditioned, the mind is conditioned. So he's pointing to something which knows, chitta means that which knows, uh, which is not conditioned. And then he talks about it as a consciousness, when he uses the word vinyana, for those of you who know, that's the vinyana, the consciousness of the five aggregates. Now, <clears throat> he can't be that vinyana because he talks about it as 
not touched by any of these senses. Doesn't belong to the sphere of the sense bases, which includes the mind and heart. And, and it's without boundary. It's phenomenon that creates boundaries. It's the walls that create the boundary of this. But there's a consciousness that doesn't have that boundary, and in all directions full of light. Just this is the end of suffering. See? Now the reason I'm, I'm pointing to that is because in later Buddhism, the accents moved away from the experience to what was the experience, what was it that knew the experience? What was it that experienced the experience? And that's when you get words like, uh, uh, uh the, the big mind, um, uh, the, the Buddha, the, the, the Buddha within, um, um, there's another one too that normally comes to mind, it's gone. So, uh, <coughs> both of these, um, ways of looking at this transcendent state is one from the point of view of experience and one point, point of view that the experience is known. Buddha means the one who knows. Now, where is it? Huh? Where is this experience to be found? Whenever we meditate and we take the position of the observer within us, because when you're the observer, you have pulled yourself out of that identity with what's going on within you, whether it be a sensation or a feeling coming from the body, an emotion or a mood that you can sense within you, a thought which you might see, but definitely images. So you've found a place which is transcendent of the body, heart and mind, and yet directly within so that's why I keep saying to people, when the sense of the observer is very, very clear to you, see, after you finish the meditation, just ask yourself, what was it like being there? See? Now, if you say to yourself, that's all right, that's good, yeah, but I'd rather be in there, <laughs> having a good time, in Buddhist terms, that's the level of delusion. <laughs> the more you seek that inner peace, that inner silence, the more it's a telling you that you are finding a different relationship with the world. That different relationship with the world is not to negate the world. You know, we try to make a distinction between indulging something and enjoying something. That, uh, that relationship now is one of, uh, of connection. And connection, it means love. It draws you into a loving connection with the world. And depending on the situation, it's either the love that we associate with friendship, or the love that we associate with suffering, which expresses our compassion, or the love that expresses itself as uh, uh, rejoicing in somebody else's happiness, sympathetic joy. And all the rest of it, all the virtues that you can think of, are the expressions of that wisdom into the world. So, the prognosis is very good. <laughs> I can only hope by words of being of some assistance, may you, by your joyful and committed practice, soon arrive at that place of pure joy, sooner rather than later.